0: As we head toward Memorial Day, Nickerson Excavation and Construction asks everyone to stop and remember the sacrifices made by our military veterans in defense of our nation's liberty. Serving the new Limerick area for over 50 years, Nickerson Excavation and Construction is your one-stop shop for all your excavation, drainage, and road construction needs, offering good old family-friendly service. For an estimate or bid, please call Nickerson Excavation at 207-532-9391. That's 207-532-9391.
1: I am still alone in my semi-studio. I guess I don't know what to call it. Uh, when we went away, I had mentioned Robert Willingham and, and the internet, and I had an agenda written out here for the program um, because I, you know, the things I wanted to cover. And, and as we're doing this thing, I think of additional stuff that needs to be said what I was talking about with Robert Willingham back in the um, 1970s, Robert Willingham appeared on the scene. Actually, the, I think it was 1968 he first appeared, talking about having been involved in this crash of a UFO near Del Rio, Texas. Near Del Rio, Texas has been in the, the news quite a bit lately. Um, and he was a fighter pilot. He'd been flying his F-94 fighter plane and uh, called out on a mission. and saw the thing crash, went back to his base at Dias Air Force Base and... Uh, got a uh, private plane and and the air force bases have aero clubs so that the people can do private flying as well. And he checked out one of those airplanes and he went down to look at the thing and was involved in this crash. He did a, an affidavit claimed that he was a former air force Colonel and uh, everybody believed him. I did a book in 1995 called a history of UFO crashes and Willingham's affidavit is in there with no, critical commentary. Well, as I was doing doing Crash when UFOs fall from the sky, I came to the Willingham story, which I still believed, and I thought, well, let's see what's new and typed the name into a search engine. And of course, Willingham came up and I found uh, uh, Noe Toys and Robert Yarte's book, The Other Roswell, and about the Del Rio crash and all this stuff about Robert Willingham pictures of him in his Air Force uniform, allegedly in his Air Force uniform. So I began to look more into this and contacted them, and they were very helpful in providing information to me. And I became a little skeptical of this thing because the story had changed. It was no longer the late 1940s when it happened. It was really, it was supposedly 1950 when it happened, and by the time we got here, now it was 19. 19- the mid-1950s when it happened and Willingham claimed to have been a fighter pilot in the Air Force. And there were pictures of him in an Air Force uniform from the 1960s and people said, well, you know, if he was going to make up the story in the 19, uh, in, in, uh, later on, why would he have these pictures of himself in an Air Force uniform? And I said to the guy, send me, send me the pictures. They did. I realized he wasn't in an Air Force uniform. He was in a Civil Air Patrol uniform, Civil Air Patrol being a civilian auxiliary of the Air Force. And they engage in search and rescue. They um, train, well, teenagers in military stuff and aviation stuff. I was a member of the Civil Air Patrol when I was a teenager, and that's why I recognized the uniform. Uh, His uniform had on both his Civil Air Patrol ribbons and ribbons he supposedly earned in the military. You can do that. In your um, Civil Air Patrol uniform, you could wear the ribbons you had earned while on in military service. You cannot wear your Civil Air Patrol ribbons on your Air Force uniform. And he had both on there. So that tells me it's not an Air Force uniform. Uh, One of the pictures you could see this metal nameplate that goes not a nameplate of it, a a little uh, sort of a patch, metal patch. That goes above the uh, right pocket that says, you know, Civil Air Patrol official auxiliary of the United States Air Force, something like that. You could you could see it in the picture, and on his collar he had the CAP on one side and his, his uh, rank on the other side. So it's CAP uniforms. There were additional pictures of him in uh, blue uniform and the lapel pins, which would have said U.S. for uh, the Air Force and CAP for CAP, were missing. But you could see the holes in the photograph. I mean, the holes in the lapels on the photograph where he removed that insignia. Uh, the other thing, and I've explained this, I think, before, uh, I looked up his records with the FAA and he was a, a private pilot. I can think of no circumstances in which a military pilot would only have a private pilot's license. The uh, the deal was the FAA would give military pilots a question, 50, year, 50 question test on FAA regulations. And if you pass the 50-question test, you got a commercial license. They figured you knew how to fly the aircraft. They knew, figured you knew the emergency procedures and all of this stuff. And, if, and when I got out of flight school, I had 210 hours of flight time. I did not avail myself of taking the test at that point because I really couldn't care less. I was going home on leave and I was soon going to be in Vietnam. I took it after I got out of the army and presented documentation with like 1,200 hours of flight time on it. So I I passed all of that. The point being is Willingham only had a private pilot's license. There's no reason for that. That was another red flag. So I looked stuff up on the internet and I got beyond the story that he was telling in uh, 2010. I got beyond the story and found the evidence that he had, invented the entire tale. My point being simply that once I had found the book by Noah Torres and Robert Yarte, I could have stopped because it kind of validates Willingham. But I became suspicious by some of the pictures I could see in the book and some of the things and the changing dates. I found the original story that Willingham had told in 1968. It appears in Skylook, which was Mufon's original journal its not the move on journal, but Skylook was their publication. And I think it's March of 1968 and it's on page three and it tells the story, Willingham's story at that point, mentioning that he's in the civil air patrol and uh, giving us a date for 1948 and giving us a lot of additional detail or detail is now contradicted by later things he said. So I was able to find the original story the 1950 version, and now the 1955 version of it. And by doing that research in depth, Uh, allowed me to determine that Willingham was not telling the truth. And I think that's the important point. We have at our fingertips with the Internet all the information we need on some of these things. We can look at these things almost in real time. We can go back. um, I looked up the weather data for Cedar Rapids, Iowa from 1982, not too long ago to see what the average high temperature was. Turns out it was actually higher than the average high temperature for July of this year. But you can do that sort of thing. There was kind of a political thing that we get into, but I was able to find documents related to all sorts of stuff that I wanted to know more about. But you have to look at it all and you have to attempt to verify it all. I'm in a kind of an enviable position because I've spent 50, 60 years researching UFOs and I can, well, not quite 60 years, but I had an opportunity to meet nearly everybody you care to talk about. I met um, Don Kehoe. I knew the Lorenzans very well. I um, was doing some research on the Tremonton, Utah UFO footage taken by uh, ward officer Delbert Newhouse. I was able to interview Delbert Newhouse. I was able to get his impression. Uh, I was in Lubbock, Texas, actually doing research on the Roswell case, and on a lark, I looked up uh, Carl Hart's phone number in the Lubbock phone book, and I found it. He was there, and I called him and chatted with him about the Lubbock Lights photographs that he'd taken back in 1951. Uh, Unfortunately, Carl Carl Hart has passed away since then, but the point simply is I have a vast uh, network, I guess, of people I can call and ask questions of when I'm investigating a case. And sometimes I don't need to do that. I have the information on the internet and I can go through that information and compare it with other information. And that's what you need to do when we're doing something like this. We have to remember that people tend to place themselves in situations, uh, famous situations in which they were not a participant, simply for, I guess, the reflected glory. And I remember uh, seeing something about uh, when the Giants won the pennant back in the 1950s and the guy screaming, the Giants win the pennant. And, you know, and there were maybe what 25, 30,000 people in the, in the ballpark when it happened, maybe, maybe a few more. But there's like 200,000 people who claimed to have been there when they had detonated the atomic bomb in New Mexico in uh, July of 1940, 45, uh, everybody who lived in New Mexico, apparently claimed to have seen the flash. Doesn't matter. It was like five o'clock in the morning or six o'clock in the morning. Um, you were in Albuquerque. The w- mountains would have gotten in the way. Uh, you were in Taos, New Mexico. You were... At one corner of New Mexico, if you were in New Mexico, you claim to have seen the flash. And there's a a book called Stolen Valor about people who probably were out protesting the war during the 1960s, now claiming they were Vietnam veterans. And so you have to take a look at all of this. And I, I remember I met a guy in the department store the other day. I had on my Vietnam veterans hat. I switch it between my Iraqi freedom hat. And the guy came up to talk to me and he claimed he was a Vietnam veteran. We were talking about when we were there and all this. And um, I mentioned I was a helicopter pilot. And he said, oh, he had flown helicopters. And I said, oh, really? And it turned out his story was that um, he flew with a he was an enlisted guy, but he flew with a um, another officer who was a Chinook pilot. And the Chinook pilot's co-pilot had gotten sick or something. So this guy filled in for him and went on lots of missions with him in the Chinook, and I'm thinking, I don't think so. Didn't buy the story. If, 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 if a pilot was wounded, and you needed somebody to fill his seat or something, the crew chief or the door gunner might have come up and sat in the seat, but that by no means made, made them a pilot. So I guess, although I wanted to talk about um, what ufology is doing today and where we are, and how triangles are beginning to permeate the uh, the skies and that sort of thing. I've, you know, I've let this other stuff get in the way, but I think it's important that we understand that unlike that TV commercial that said, everything you read on the internet has to be true, they won't let you put it on there. That's not true, that uh, especially in, in, in the realm we're talking about UFOs and the paranormal, people can put anything they want on the internet without having to worry about proof, without having to worry about uh, even answering questions. I get questions all the time about stuff, and I try to answer them as best I can. But uh, other things sometimes get in the way, and I don't have all the time to research something to to prove a point or provide a precise uh, source. I can put you in the direction and say, you you need to look at this, this, and this. It's in there somewhere. It's kind of like that document I've been looking for on on, – Project Moondust, you know, I can tell you where I found it. I can tell you how I found it. I just can't put my hand on the document anymore. I copied stuff from the document. So uh, if anybody of you find it, you know, more power to you. But the point simply is you have to take a look at everything. You have to compare the information. You have to see how it fits into the overall narrative. You have to see how uh, the, the, the the person telling it, how they relate to it, how they uh, tell it from one, one point to the next. Do they change substantial parts of it? I mean we know that people when they're telling a story an experience sometimes change things suddenly not purposely but, but but do it accidentally as they're trying to remember exactly what happened. Uh, but if they change significant things like Willingham changing the date uh, from, from 1948 when he when uh, when he found out the due line didn't exist in there, he moved it to the 1950s, so it could be there. And then he said, well, no, I was in Korea. It couldn't have been the 1950s, it was 1955. Well, at that point, you say, no, I don't think so. Um, you know, provide us with some documentation, provide us with some information, just don't keep uh, feeding us this line. Uh, the documentation presented, he presented, by the way, was, was altered, and, and you can see how it had been altered. And I checked out the documentation with both the um, archives in St. Louis, the military archives in St. Louis, and the Air Reserve Personnel Center in uh, Denver about that and and found the documents had been altered, and that of course was a big red flag. But the point simply is, we'll wrap it up here with the idea, if you're going to do research, be sure to follow through, ask all the questions. Don't stop at one point when you get the information you want, ask the additional questions. Look for the additional information, take it to the very end and analyze that data carefully and then decide what you wish to believe. You know, do you think this is accurate? Do you think that is accurate? Go with, go with what your gut tells you about that. Uh, I do want to say that my latest book UFOs in the Deep State is out there. Take a look at it. I think with what's going on in the world today in the deep state, it's going to open a few eyes. I will be back in 167 hours. Talking with Bob Young about the Kexford UFO crash. And I think his perspective is going to be a little bit different than that of Stan Gordon. I'd like to thank you for listening, and you have been listening to A Different Perspective on the broadcast, Exxon Broadcast Network. Back without guests today. Uh, I haven't really planned it this way, but circumstances kind of dictated that we we go in this direction. I do want to say that there are many other fine programs on the X Zone Broadcast Network that deal with the paranormal and UFOs and things that are of interest to all of us. So take a look at the listings on the X Zone website at xzbn.net, and I'm sure you're going to find. Other programs that will be just as interesting as this one is. I have to say it that way to make everybody happy, I suppose. But there are good programs on the Exxon Broadcast Network. Anyway, all of this uh, stuff about LeCamp came about um, partially because of uh, what I think of as my journey to Project Blue Book. Back in 19... 19- The the mid-1970s, I was a member of ROTC, and for those of you who wonder about that, as a ward officer in in the 1960s and 70s, ward officers weren't commissioned. We are appointed ward officers. They've now changed it so you're appointed a ward officer as a W-1, and then when you become a CW-2, you are commissioned. The difference was ward officers couldn't command troops, but commissioned officers could. And so now instead of being chief ward officer, it's commissioned ward officer. Uh, I digress into the history of that nonsense. But the point simply is when I was in college, I had an opportunity to join Air Force ROTC with the promise of flying a jet aircraft. Because I had not been commissioned, I could do that. And one of the things that showed up periodically at the detachment headquarters, the detachment building, the detachment offices, was a bulletin about what was going on in the Air Force. And they knew that I was interested in UFOs, meaning the people in, in, at the college knew I was interested in this, and gave me uh, the bulletin that showed that uh, the Project Blue Book files were now available for public scrutiny at Maxwell Air Force Base. The gag was you had to know they were there. Uh, if you didn't know that they were there and, and available, you wouldn't make a request. Well, I have been writing magazine articles for a number of UFO magazines, including Saga's UFO Report. And I would call the editor, David Ehrlich, and um, I rarely got through to him. They would always say, well, he'll call you back. He's in the meeting right now. He's too busy and he might call me back and he might not. It was just a way of, I guess, keeping my hand in that and dealing with this and writing UFO articles, which, by the way, were paying my college tuition. So it was kind of an important thing for me to do to be able to sell these articles to them. Well, when I found out about Project Blue Book Files being open, I called my editor and they said the same thing that, well, he's in a meeting right now. Uh, can he call you back? And I said, certainly. I said, just tell him I can get to the Project Blue Book Files. Within about five minutes, I got a call back, not from him, but from his boss. And he was telling me all the things to look for. And I said, well, I take it I have the assignment to go to Project Blue Book. What I didn't tell him was you can send any writer down there who, who knew about it. I just happened to know about it. So with Bob Cornett, we went down to the project, we went down to Maxwell Air Force Base. We looked at, uh, we got, we got there, and we're at the library where the, or the archives where these things are housed, and we're talking to the people there, and they're just kind of giving us the runaround. And finally, a guy shows up in a business suit, and he's Mr. Smith from Washington, and he talks to him for a minute, and he says, "Give these guys everything they want." We had a letter from the detachment commander, by the way, saying we were an ROTC, which of course impressed people not at all but it was a connection to the military. So they said, well, what do you want? And I could think of a few cases that would be important. It would be in the blue book file. So we asked for those files specifically. And they brought them into this little room office type area about well, the libraries and colleges will have the, the study rooms. And we had one of those And they brought it in. And one of them said to us, one of the people who brought it in said, you know, there's an index. We said, well, we didn't know that. And please bring us the index and the index. I now had, I have a copy of it. Um, It's in two, three ring binders. What was important there was that none of the names were redacted. They were all there. So the first thing that Bob and I did was we went through the Project Blue Book Index. He had one section of it. I had another. And we wrote down the the dates, the locations, the witnesses uh, to all the unidentified cases. We also looked at the um, physical evidence cases and the photographic cases. So when the Files were moved to Washington, D.C., and the Air Force went through it and redacted all the names. I thought Bob and I had a unique thing here because we could put the names back in for at least some of the cases. I rarely found a case where the Air Force was able or or, or managed to redact all the names in a case file. We could usually find the names. Sometimes there were newspaper articles appended to the file and the names weren't redacted from there. I guess the Air Force thinking that they had promised the witnesses your names won't be released publicly, but if it's in a newspaper, they didn't bother to redact it. So there were all kinds of ways of finding out who the people were. The point here is, um, a number of years ago, a fellow named Rob Mercer, and he'd been, he was on the program three or four years ago. He had been looking at Craigslist, looking for anything related to UFOs. And somebody had put up a box of documents for sale that were apparently from Blue Book. So he took a chance and bought it. And this is all laid out in the, um, in, in the, in the, the program that we did. Uh, what I was thinking is, you know, I can link to it. It's in the uh, embedded uh, audio player on my website. Just look for um, Rob Mercer and he can explain the whole thing. But he bought the box. And it was Blue Book articles or Blue Book documents. And it was very important. So in a bit of brilliant detective work, He found out, he got in touch with the guy who sold him the box, who told him how he came into possession of it. It was at a garage sale, and he'd bought a load of lumber, and somehow the box was loaded on his truck. Um, So he was able to, Mercer was able to find out where the garage sale was held, who owned the house, and learned that the previous owner had been an Air Force officer. It was Carmen Morano, who had been the last officer in Blue Book after Hector Quintanella had left Blue Book and they were closing it down, he was the guy that was kind of ramrodding the closing down. So he got, so Mercer talked to uh, Carmen Morano and learned he had additional documents. Well, the point is, one of the documents he got was the entire index unredacted. So I would periodically call, if I couldn't find a name in a file, I would call or email to Rob and say, hey, can you find out uh, this guy uh, who, who these the witnesses are. And this came about because I was looking for cases of Tic Tacs being reported in uh, prior to the Navy's Tic Tacs and afterwards. I was looking for that. And I remembered a picture had been taken in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba in 1960. So I went to my file and I pulled that out. And of course, I didn't have the name. And the file is like three pages and the name wasn't there. So I had, I had uh, emailed Rob Mercer and he said, uh, he sent me the name and he said, oh, I meant to send you a scan of all this. So I now have a complete set of the indexes with all the names in it so we can put all the names back in. But what's important here is, and I've, I've been doing this and I know others have as well, periodically going through the blue book files and finding interesting things in there below camp Louisiana case is one of those. And I, in the, in the email I got from, uh, Mark Roniger yesterday, he was surprised that he hadn't caught that either. That, um, that one had kind of skipped his attention. It has skipped all our attentions. We normally paid attention to the unidentified because these were the ones the air force said they couldn't explain. So, um that was how I picked up the file because it was right behind uh, the the LeCamp file was right behind the one from Guantanamo Bay, whose name I could put back into that now. He was a private E2 who took this picture and it looks like the tic-tac, it was taken in Guantanamo. There's not a lot of information about it. Um, and that'll appear on the blog here in a couple of days. So you can take a look at that as well. But what we're finding in the blue book files is hints of other stuff. That's important. LeCamp was one of those hints. Uh, one of the other things we found, I found operation horsefly, which is something nobody had ever talked about was this idea that they were going to task, um, company grade officers and mid-level NCOs, uh, with investigating UFOs, sending them out to investigate from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base as a way of giving them experience with dealing with TDY and going to other bases and that sort of thing. I don't think they ever put it into operation, but it was something that they had, we're gonna use as a training exercise, I suppose. Uh, I found references to Project Moondust in the Project Blue Book files, which nobody had caught until after, uh, we'd known about Moondust for 20 years. And I was looking for something else, and I was scanning by in the microfilm, and the term moon dust went by, and I went back and looked, and there's four cases, I think, again from September of 1960, the same time frame all of this other stuff came about, that said moon dust. Now, as I've said before on this program and elsewhere, they're really crappy sightings. They sound more or less like meteors, seen just for a fraction of a second and that sort of thing. But the point is not that there's an explanation for the sightings. The point is they're moon dust sightings that were sent onto Project Blue Book, which of course establishes the connection between moon dust and UFOs, or, or, or I guess strengthens that connection because we know, we know the connection was there. So uh, in the course of my research, the National Archives would sell rolls of the microfilm. For t- it started out at $10 a roll. And as I was doing certain research in certain areas, I would buy two or three of the rolls that were necessary for the research. I eventually ended up with the entire 96 files. Uh, The last bunch of them, um, somebody else had a, a set of the Blue Book files and loaned me those so I could have them duplicated for a much cheaper cost than the National Archives was selling them for. But I have a complete set of Blue Book files on microfilm as well. And as I say, there's there's just all kinds of things in there. I found a letter, and I have not been able to locate it again, and I do not know why I didn't photograph. My microfilm reader, of course, has no capability for uh, producing the document. But it establishes the beginning of Moondust, which we all had thought had begun in 1952 with the uh, 4602nd Air Intelligence Service Squadron, but it turned out it began in 1957 after the launch of Sputnik. In October, and there's a letter in there where somebody's complaining about the workload because of the November sightings, all the sightings in November of 1957. And the response was um, that, that this Project Moondust had been created, and you could tap into those resources as well. And it gives us not the exact date, but says it just recently created, and the letter's dated. December of 1957. I have been through those files. Again, I cannot find that letter. I copied the information down and I was looking into the um, sightings from November of 1957, not just the Leveland sightings, but all of them around that time frame. And I've been through those files looking for the letter. I've been through the administrative files from that time looking for the letter. I have not been able to find it. I've queried a number of different organizations um, uh, the archi- archival exo- uh, organizations, military archival exo- uh, organizations attempting to find this letter. I haven't been able to. do I'm going to stumble onto it again one day and then I'll be happy. But the point simply is the Blue Book files, although they end in 1969, there is a lot of things that have been missed. i think of the the gold rush program that they show on on arts and entertainment and they're they're looking at the tailings that the old timers left behind this is the rocks and things they washed and went through and they're going through the tilings and they're able to recover more gold the old timers didn't have the technology to recover the gold that they do and that's kind of where we are with blue book there's some very good stuff there and now we have resources uh rob mercer's uh resources a lot of the stuff he has is things that they were going to throw out from Blue Book. So he's got uh, information that um, isn't necessarily part of the Blue Book files uh, that were released publicly, but, but additional information that provides insights into the way the, the thing was operating in 19 uh, during, during its time of existence. So it's important stuff that we go through and we look at the historical context. And it it kind of shows us how we are now in what I think of as Twining 2.0, which is the new investigations. And when we come back after this, I will explain what I mean by Twining 2.0 or Condon 2.0 so we get a better idea of the historical context of all of this stuff. So I will mention here. That I have the stuff on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And you have been listening to A Different Perspective on the XO Broadcast Network. And we will be back right after this. So please stick around. sitting alone, maybe because of COVID, maybe not, maybe just the way things worked out. My guest has deserted me. Now I shouldn't say any bad things about Rob, it's uh, he's, he's ill and we certainly uh, appreciate all he's done in his his work. When we went away, I mentioned Twining 22.0 and I had some other things on the agenda here, but I thought I'd explain that because I think it's important to understand this. Back in um, 1948, the, um, one of the Air Force intelligence directorates, uh, headed up by um, Brigadier General George Shogun, put together a estimate of the situation, uh, a, a, a sort of a mini estimate of the situation. And what was, he put together, I think there were 16 or 18 different sightings in this document that he put together and sent on to. Air Material Command for them for their analysis of it. Twining was the commanding general at Air Material Command in 1947, 1948. And I think that Shogun and his people at a lower headquarters thought that Twining would say, Don't worry about this, we know about this. You know, talking about UFOs. What are the UFOs? Do we have to have this research? Are, are we do we need to go out and investigate these things? And I think that they were under the impression that it was a top secret project of the United States government and they would be told to back off and they wouldn't have to worry about it anymore. What happened was Twining issued a document, um, in September, say like September 23rd, 1947, I believe. And in that he, he said that the phenomenon is something real, not illusionary or fictitious. So Twining is telling them that these UFOs are real. That they need to be investigated. He's setting he, up. He wants them to set up a project with a two-way priority, which is nearly the, the highest priority you can get. A, a um, actually, it's a classified project with a code name. It was Project Sign, as I think many of you know. Publicly, it was called Project Saucer. You weren't supposed to know the name Project Sign, but the point is, Twining's people looked at those uh, 16 or 18 reports. I think there were uh, sightings. There were some 38 or 36 different reports involved some of the reports of course referred to the same sightings others had reported so it wasn't 32 separate sightings and i, I mentioned this because we were told in june about the 144 reports that they had' in, examined um, and it didn't tell us how many sightings there were it was how many reports there were and i was wondering you know is the number somewhat lower than that So Twining set up the project, said they would need to do this, they would need to do that. Uh, We would have to investigate. These things would be classified. And they would gather the data as quietly as possible. Fast forward to today, what do we get in June 25th? We got basically Twining 2.0. What do they tell us? Well, we have 144 sightings, um, 144 reports. We've uh, not been able to identify 143 of them. We don't know what's going on. We have no clue. We need to investigate further and we will continue to search. This is exactly what Twining told us in 1947. We've managed to get nowhere in all this time. And now we're going to have a new investigation and they're going to do this and they're going to do that. And I just don't think it's going to go anywhere. I think we're going to get the same thing we got then. Well, we looked at it. We couldn't find anything there. Go away. I do not understand how... This can possibly be going on in this fashion. Congress mandated the investigation. It appears that the what director of national intelligence decided uh, to blow it off, figured Congress would forget they'd be involved with something else and not have to worry about it. And apparently late in the game, they, they knew they had 180 days to prepare their report late in the game. Somebody said, uh, how's your report going? And they said, oh, my God, we've got to come up with something. And so they spent two or three weeks putting this thing together because it was a lot low priority for them. Not realizing that, uh, good Lord, they could have called, called me and I could have put together a much better report for them. I could have called a lot of people in the UFO field and got a much better report. I don't think anybody's happy with that report. It just looks like a, a job a high school student would do and not a very bright high school student at that. I was told by, by some people, well, the problem was that um, nobody paid much attention to it. They didn't assign people to it. They didn't spend 180 days looking at it. They did it at the last minute, kind of like if, you, if you've been to college and you were assigned a term paper at the beginning of the term, and the, the last week you say, oh my God, I have to do a term paper. It was that kind of thing. It, it just didn't make a lot of sense. So uh, that's kind of where, that's why I think of it as Twining 2.0. It's the same thing that we did in the 1940s. Um, I guess we're doing it on computers instead of typewriters and we have better communications. So we're not learning anything there. But this also kind of leads into another thing. I saw something on the internet the other day about the Philadelphia experiment. I cannot believe that people are still buying into that nonsense. Here's what happened. I have I have an, I have experience with that. It turns out when you talk about UFOs, I've been around long enough. I know practically everybody and have been involved in practically everything. Philadelphia Experiment was the idea. The Navy had teleported a ship from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C., and t- transported back. And the sailors failed. They they died. They were caught in the bulkheads. It was all kinds of things went wrong with it. One or two guys have come forward. and said, Yeah, I was there. I was on the on the ship. Uh, I had a book. I was still in the Army. Uh, I returned from Vietnam. I had a book by Brad Steiger and Joan Wittenhauer about the Allende letters. Allende was supposedly one of the sailors on the ship. And Brad Steiger's correspondent had written to the chief of naval operations and asked him about the Philadelphia experiment. And Brad, in the the book, said the the chief of naval operations had responded, and he got a copy of this book that they had reprinted. Um, and I know I'm kind of throwing facts out here, and I'm trying to keep it straight for you. Um, Allende had sent a number of letters and an annotated copy of a book to the um, Office of Naval Research, and there was underlinings in it, and it suggested some kind of knowledge of UFOs that wasn't, wasn't out there for the general public. And the idea was that the Office of Naval Research took it seriously. They reproduced the book, um, typewritten type book, and uh, made a number of copies for research and that sort of thing. Turns out, uh, I, I learned about that from, from this book. The guy had gotten a copy of the book, and it was, uh, had been reproduced by Varro Manufacturing. I think it was in Garland, Texas. And I said, I'm at Fort Walters. I'm not that far away. They mentioned they mentioned the name of the people who contacted Varro. As a matter of fact, the chief of naval operations wrote back. He knew exactly what I was talking about, which kind of surprised me. So I called down there and I got a hold of a guy named Sidney Sherby. And he was one of the two officers, naval officers involved in this. The other guy, whose name was Hoover and I forget his first name. So I talked to Sherby briefly and he told me, you know, if you, co- you want to come down and chat about this, I got a copy of the book. I can show it to you and that sort of thing. So I went down to chat with him about it. And I I learned that the idea that the Office of Naval Research had taken the book seriously was untrue. That Sherby and Hoover thought it was interesting and wanted to follow up on it. And the Navy said, well, we have no objection to that, as long as you don't use any Navy resources or any Navy time, which is why viral manufacturing created the the, uh, typewritten version of the book. So I remember sitting in Sherby's office, and he's got a copy of the book, and it's got a blue cover on it, and and we're flipping through it, and it's in black... Uh, type and the annotations that were put in by the allegedly three people who went through it and made the notations were in red. And Sherby said to me, well, if you've got a way of copying it, this is the only copy I have left. I will loan it to you. I said, sure, I can get it copied. So I took it back. He loaned it to me. I took it back. Um, In our post library, you could copy up to 10 pages a day. Of stuff. And so I, every other day I would show up and copy 10 pages of this book. So I had a, I had a copy of the annotated copy and I sent it back to him. You can now find it online. I think um, I've, I've got a copy of it uh, digitally as well. Um, so it, it's there, but, but the point simply is the Philadelphia experiment tale as it's been told is, is untrue. But the point I'm getting to now is they keep showing up, telling the story from Al Balik who supposedly was one of the sailors. Al Balik wasn't his real name, he changed his name from his real name to Al Balik, because I think that Balik name shows up on one of the rosters. By the way, the ship that allegedly was teleported, the the ship's logs exist, and you can tell that the when the ship was supposedly in Philadelphia, it was I think actually in the Mediterranean during World War II. So you've got the ship's logs that kind of invalidate these claims. Um, Brad Steiger was a good friend of Al Balik. And uh, I knew Brad and you know, we would talk about these things periodically and Brad's attitude had always been, he was going to believe what you told him as long as uh, you didn't lie to him. And if he found out you would lie to him, then, you know, all bets were off. But his, his research technique is, is one that I kind of admire kind of a believing everybody, but as a hard nosed investigator, you really can't do that. And I've been caught a couple of times believing people I shouldn't have. And, and Brad told me that, Balik had been to his house a number of times, stayed overnight there a, a number of times, and they talked about the Philadelphia experiment. And then Brad learned that Al Balik was lying about it. And he was very disappointed in, in Balik. But here is a story that keeps resurfacing on the Internet, talking about the Philadelphia experiment. Yende um, has been found. Uh, his name was really Carl Allen. A guy named uh, Gorman found him in uh, uh, in, in living in Pennsylvania, uh, I have a ca- article that I had written for official UFO magazine about the Philadelphia experiment explaining a lot of this stuff. And I think I, I posted it to my blog. And then we have the underlinings and the notations from from Allende on it. Uh, Allende not being pleased with my analysis of it, but I thought it was kind of cool that I have this article that I wrote that has caused Allende to to respond. And by the way, the other thing you need to know about the uh, letters, Allende apparently thought he had cancer at one point. He showed up in Tucson, Arizona at the headquarters of the Air Phenomenal Research Organization and Jim Lorenzen talked to him. And Allende Allen said he was on his way to Mexico for some cancer treatments. Uh, and left some materials, a suitcase or something behind at APRO headquarters. Well, apparently, Yende was either cured or he didn't have cancer and returned. But he had admitted to Lorenzen before he went down there that he made the whole thing up. He said that the writings in the book, it was uh, The Case for the UFO by Morris K. Jessup, scared him, and he wanted to scare Jessup from writing anymore. And so he was the author of all three different um, not- the notations, but from, supposedly from three different hands. It was in three different colored ink, I think is the way they determined that. And, and that sort of thing, but he admitted it was a hoax. So we have an, an admission that it was a hoax. We know that the ship was in the Mediterranean and not in Philadelphia. We know that Al Balik has been lying about it. We've got uh, the story from the men who were at the Office of Naval Research at the time. I talked to Sidney Sherby personally about this. Um, So I think at this point, that case is pretty well dead and yet it keeps resurfacing. And I find that kind of annoying in the world today. The other thing that that we need to get to here quickly is too often when people are doing research on the internet, everything's on the internet. um, They stop with what they want. They're looking for Philadelphia experiment. They will overlook the skeptical sites. And they will just plug into the sites that suggested some kind of a uh, a horrendous experiment that went wrong. They won't look at the other side and see what the evidence is. The skeptics do the same thing on the other side of the coin, finding what they think is the critical error in this and promoting that, even though it may not be a critical error. I try to look at both sides and get all the information. Um, about these things going a little bit more in depth. Robert Willingham is a prime example of of that. And I think that what we'll do is we'll get to Robert Willingham in a moment because I don't have enough time to explain that, but I think it's an important thing to understand about how research works and how we should be doing things on the internet because there's a lot of misinformation out there, but you can get to the proper answer if you take enough time to look and don't get bogged down in looking for a way of proving what you want to believe, but look for a way to disprove it, uh, kind of a scientific method here. Uh, when we come back, I will talk about Robert Willingham briefly and a little bit about um, what UFOs are doing in the world today. You are listening to A Different Perspective on the Exome Broadcast Network, and I will be back right after this, so please stick around. alone in my semi-studio, I guess, I don't know what to call it, uh, when we went away, i had mentioned Robert Willingham and, and the internet, and I had an agenda written out here for the program, uh, because I, you know, the things I wanted to cover, and, and as we're doing this thing, I think of additional stuff that needs to be said what I was talking about with Robert Willingham back in the um, 1970s, Robert Willingham appeared on the scene. Actually, I think it was 1968. He first appeared talking about having been involved in this crash of a UFO near Del Rio, Texas, near Del Rio, Texas has been in the the news quite a bit lately. Um, And he was a fighter pilot. He'd been flying his F 94 fighter plane and uh, called out on a mission. I saw the thing crash, went back to his base at Dias air force base and, uh, got a uh, private plane and, and the Air Force bases have aero clubs so that the people can do private flying as well. And he checked out one of those airplanes and he went down to look at the thing and was involved in this crash. He did a an affidavit, claimed that he was a former Air Force Colonel and uh, everybody believed him. I did a book in 1995 called A History of UFO Crashes and Willingham's affidavit is in there with no Critical commentary well, as I was doing doing crash when UFOs fall from the sky. I came to the Willingham story, which I still believed. And I thought, well, let's see what's new and typed the name into a search engine. And of course, Willingham came up and I found uh, uh, Noe Toy's and Robert Yarte's book, The Other Roswell, and about the Del Rio crash and all this stuff about Robert Willingham pictures of him in his Air Force uniform, allegedly in his Air Force uniform. So I began to look more into this and contacted them, and they were very helpful in providing information to me. And I became a little skeptical of this thing because the story had changed. It was no longer the late 1940s when it happened. It was really, it was supposedly 1950 when it happened, and by the time we got here, now it was 19. the mid-1950s when it happened, and Willingham claimed to have been a fighter pilot in the Air Force. And there were pictures of him in an Air Force uniform from the 1960s. And people said, well, you know, if he was going to make up the story in the 19, uh, in, in, uh, later on, why would he have these pictures of himself in an Air Force uniform? And I said to the guy, send me, send me the pictures. They did. I realized he wasn't in an Air Force uniform. He was in a Civil Air Patrol uniform, Civil Air Patrol being a civilian auxiliary of the Air Force. And they engage in search and rescue. They um, train, well, teenagers in military stuff and aviation stuff. I was a member of the Civil Air Patrol when I was a teenager, and that's why I recognized the uniform. Uh, His uniform had on both his Civil Air Patrol ribbons and ribbons he supposedly earned in the military. You can do that. In your um, Civil Air Patrol uniform, you could wear the ribbons you had earned while on in military service. You cannot wear your Civil Air Patrol ribbons on your Air Force uniform. And he had both on there. So that tells me it's not an Air Force uniform. Uh, One of the pictures you could see this metal nameplate that goes, not a nameplate of it, a a little uh, sort of a patch, metal patch. That goes above the uh, right pocket that says, you know, Civil Air Patrol, official auxiliary of the United States Air Force, something like that. You could you could see it in the picture, and on his collar he had the CAP on one side and his, his uh, rank on the other side. So it's CAP uniforms. There were additional pictures of him in uh, blue uniform and the lapel pins, which would have said U.S. for uh, the Air Force and CAP for CAP, were missing. But you could see the holes in the photograph. I mean, the holes in the lapels on the photograph, where he removed that insignia. Uh, the other thing, and I've explained this, I think, before, uh, I looked up his records with the FAA, and he was a, a private pilot. I can think of no circumstances in which a military pilot would only have a pri- private pilot's license. The uh, the deal was the FAA would give military pilots a 50-question 50 test on FAA regulations. And if you pass the 50-question test, you got a commercial license. They figured you knew how to fly the aircraft. They knew, figured you knew the emergency procedures and all of this stuff. And, if, and when I got out of flight school, I had 210 hours of flight time. I did not avail myself of taking the test at that point because I really couldn't care less. I was going home on leave and I was soon going to be in Vietnam. I took it after I got out of the army and presented documentation with like 1200 hours of flight time on it, so I I passed all of that. The point being is, Willingham only had a private pilot's license, there's no reason for that. That was another red flag. So I looked stuff up on the internet, and I got beyond the story that he was telling in uh, 2010. I got beyond the story and found the evidence that he had invented the entire tale. My point being simply that once I had found the book by Noah Torres and Robert Yarte, I could have stopped because it kind of validates Willingham. But I became suspicious by some of the pictures I could see in the book and some of the things and the changing dates. I found the original story that Willingham had told in 1968. It appears in Skylook, which was Mufon's original journal, not the move on journal, but Skylook was their publication. And I think it's March of 1968 and it's on page three and it tells the story, Willingham's story at that point, mentioning that he's in the Civil Air Patrol and uh, giving us a date for 1948 and giving us a lot of additional detail or detail is now contradicted by later things he said. So I was able to find the original story the 1950 version and now the 1955 version of it. And by doing that research in depth uh, allowed me to determine that Willingham was not telling the truth. And I think that's the important point. We have at our fingertips with the internet all the information we need on some of these things. We can look at these things almost in real time. We can go back. Um I looked up the weather data for Cedar Rapids, Iowa from 1982, not too long ago, to see what the average high temperature was. Turns out it was actually higher than the average ty- high temperature for July of this year. But uh, you, you can do that sort of thing. There was um, a, a, it, it, kind of a political thing that we get into, but um, I was able to find documents related to all sorts of stuff that I wanted to know more about. But you have to look at it all and you have to attempt to verify it all. I'm in a a, kind of an enviable position because I've spent 50, 60 years researching UFOs and I can, well, not quite 60 years, but I had an opportunity to meet nearly everybody you care to talk about. I met um, Don Kehoe. I knew the Lorenzans very well. I um, was doing some research on the Tremonton, Utah UFO footage taken by uh, Ward Officer Delbert Newhouse. I was able to interview Delbert Newhouse. I was able to get his impression. Uh, I was in Lubbock, Texas actually doing research on the Roswell case and on a lark I looked up uh, Carl Hart's phone number in the Lubbock phone book and I found it. He was there and I called him and chatted with him about the Lubbock Lights photographs that he'd taken back in 1951. Unfortunately, Carl Carl Hart has passed away since then. But the point simply is I have a vast uh, network, I guess, of people I can call and ask questions of when I'm investigating a case and sometimes I don't need to do that. I have the information on the internet and I can go through that information and compare it with other information. And that's what you need to do when we're doing something like this. We have to remember that people tend to place themselves in situations, uh, famous situations in which they were not a participant simply for, I guess, the reflected glory. And I remember... Uh, seeing something about uh, when the Giants won the pennant back in the 1950s, and the guy screaming, "The Giants win the pennant!" and you know, and there were maybe what 25, 30 thousand people in the in the ballpark when it happened. Maybe maybe a few more, but there's like 200,000 000 people who claimed to have been there when they had detonated the atomic bomb in New Mexico in uh, July of 1945. Uh, everybody who lived in New Mexico, apparently, claimed to have seen the flash. Doesn't matter it was like 5 o'clock in the morning or 6 o'clock in the morning. Um, you were in Albuquerque. The w- mountains would have gotten in the way. Uh, you were in Taos, New Mexico. You were at one corner of, of New Mexico. If you were in New Mexico, you claim to have seen the flash. And there's uh, a book called Stolen Valor about people who probably were out protesting the war during the 1960s, now claiming they were Vietnam veterans. And so you have to take a look at all of this. And I, I remember I met a guy in the department store the other day. I had on my Vietnam veterans hat. I switch it between my Iraqi freedom hat. And the guy came up to talk to me, and he claimed he was a Vietnam veteran. And we were talking about when we were there and all this. And um, it, I mentioned I was a helicopter pilot. And he said, oh, he had flown helicopters. And I said, oh, really? And it turned out his story was that... Um, He flew with a, he was an enlisted guy, but he flew with a, um, another officer who was a Chinook pilot and the Chinook pilot's co-pilot had gotten sick or something. So this guy filled in for him and went on lots of missions with him in the Chinook. And I'm thinking, I don't think so. Didn't buy the story. If, 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 if a pilot was wounded and you needed somebody to fill his seat or something, the crew chief or the door gunner might've come up and sat in the seat, but that by no means made them a pilot. So I guess, although I wanted to talk about um, what ufology is doing today and where we are and how triangles are beginning to permeate the, uh, the skies and that sort of thing, I've, you know, I've let this other stuff get in the way. But I think it's important that we understand that unlike that TV commercial that said, everything you read on the internet has to be true. They won't let you put it on there. That's not true that uh, especially in, in, in the realm we're talking about UFOs and the paranormal, people can put anything they want on the internet without having to worry about proof, without having to worry about uh, even answering questions. I get questions all the time about stuff and I try to answer them as best I can. But uh, other things sometimes get in the way and I don't have all the time to research something to, to prove a point or provide a precise uh, source, I can d- put you in the direction and say, you do know, need to look at this, this, and this. It's in there somewhere. It's kind of like that document I've been looking for on on uh, Project Moondust. You know, I can tell you where I found it. I can tell you how I found it. I just can't put my hand on the document anymore. I copied stuff from the document. So uh, if anybody of you find it, you know, more power to you. But the point simply is you have to take a look at everything. You have to compare the information. You have to see how it fits into the overall narrative. You have to see how uh, the, the, the the person telling it, how they relate to it, how they uh, tell it from one, one point to the next. Do they change substantial parts of it? I mean, we know that people, when they're telling a story, uh, an experience, sometimes change things suddenly, not purposely, but, but, but do it accidentally as they're trying to remember exactly what happened. Uh, but if they change significant things, like Willingham changing the date uh, from from 1948 when he when uh, when he found out the Dew Line didn't exist in there, he moved it to the 1950s, so it could be there. And then he said, "Well, no, I was in Korea. It couldn't have been the 1950s. It was 1955." Well, at that point, you say, no, I don't think so." Um, you know, provide us with some documentation. Provide us with some information. Just don't keep. Uh, feeding us this line. Uh, The documentation presented, he presented by the way was was altered and and you can see how it had been altered. And I checked out the documentation with both the um, archives in St. Louis, the military archives in St. Louis and the Air Reserve Personnel Center in uh, Denver about that. found the documents had been altered. And that, of course, was a big red flag. But the point simply is, we'll wrap it up here with the idea, if you're going to do research, be sure to follow through. Ask all the questions. Don't stop at one point when you get the information you want. Ask the additional questions. Look for the additional information. Take it to the very end and analyze that data carefully. And then decide what you wish to believe. You know, do you think this is accurate? Do you think that is accurate? Go Go with what your gut tells you on that. Uh, I do want to say that my latest book, UFOs in the Deep State, is out there. Take a look at it. I think with what's going on in the world today in the deep state, it's going to open a few eyes. I will be back in 167 hours talking with Bob Young about the Kexford UFO crash. And I think his perspective is going to be a little bit different than that of Stan Gordon. I'd like to thank you for listening. And you have been listening to a different perspective on the broadcast zone Broadcast Network.